Welcome to Sense and Sensibility, the Inflation Guy podcast. I am Michael Ashton. I am the Inflation Guy, and I am your host. And today on the podcast, we're going to talk about something which, uh, well, it's one of those those shower thoughts that you have, or if you're the Inflation Guy that you have. You guys probably, when you're in the shower, probably don't think a whole lot about inflation, but I do because I think about inflation everywhere. Anyway, I had sort of a thought about college education and tuition and uh, and quality adjustment and, and things like that. And I thought, gosh, that would be an interesting podcast. So you be the judge. Uh, but before we get into that, a word from our sponsor. This episode of Sense and Sensibility is sponsored by Simplify ETFs, a fast-growing ETF shop democratizing access to the most sophisticated alternative strategies. With diversifying strategies like market neutral, equity long short, managed futures, and multi-strat quant, Simplify has a suite of compelling tools to help address the biggest concerns with the classic 60-40 portfolio. Check out their website at simplify.us. That's simplify.us. And you can find their entire lineup of ETFs at simplify.us slash ETFs. Congratulations, by the way, to Simplify that just recently went over $3 billion in assets under management. Uh, I saw that news, so that's that's exciting. They probably aren't all that excited about being associated with me talking about being in the shower, so I'll move on from that. Uh, let's talk about the, the trivia question. Since we're talking about college, let's see who studied. Uh, in Hobbes' epic work, Leviathan, how did the author famously describe the lives of mankind in its natural condition? A very famous description of, of the lives of mankind, the natural condition of the lives of mankind uh, in Hobbes. And that's not Calvin and Hobbes. If you don't know which Hobbes I'm talking about, then you should probably just sit this one out. So let's, uh, let's, let's talk about college anyway. But before, actually, before I talk about, before I start on the discussion of college tuition inflation, I want to editorialize about another country that has recently announced that they're ceasing issuance of inflation-linked bonds. Uh, in what seems like it was a surprise announcement, last week Germany said that they would no longer issue inflation-linked bonds going forward. About a year ago, actually just almost, just slightly more than one year ago, Canada had announced the that they were going to stop issuing real return bonds. Uh, at the time, Canada had sort of humorously claimed that there was no demand for inflation-linked bonds in an inflationary environment. Um, I was uh, I was attending the Canadian Bond Investors Association annual meeting at the time, and uh, nobody there thought that was the case. But but that was their excuse. Germany, on the other hand, gave no specific reason for for ceasing the issuance. Um, it is fairly routine for short-sighted bureaucrats in, in any country to look at the higher costs and nominal space for inflation-linked bonds when, when inflation is above expectations, you know, and they're having to pay higher coupons, and, uh, and, they th and these bureaucrats think that they're paying more money. You know, this is, it's going to save them money to stop paying, you know, stop issuing inflation-linked bonds. Even in the U.S., especially when deficits were a lot lower than, than they are now, there were regular runs at Treasury to try to try to get Treasury to stop issuing tips uh, because they were so expensive. And it was only the steady hand of Tim Bitsberger, who was the Undersecretary for the Treasury 
in charge of the TIPS program at the time, uh, he patiently delivered the message that in the long run, the Treasury lowers its total costs and the to total costs to taxpayers by being a consistent issuer and by distributing to the widest pool of investors possible. And it was only because Bitsberger like held off you know, all of the studies that said, oh, tips were expensive and, and so on and so forth, um, which most of the studies were not done very well. And, and they actually didn't reach the, the, the conclusions they reached weren't accurate. But um, but Bitsberger just sort of held them off. And as a consequence, we have the largest inflation linked bond market in the world and one that is characterized by regular issuance. Um if Germany, you know, Germany was only about 2 to 3% of global inflation-linked bond float, so, you know, them leaving is not a big deal. But if they ever want to come back into the inflation-linked bond market, you know, they'll have to address the fact that now asset managers will look at them and go, well, you know, when are you going to give me an illiquid bond again? When are you going to take that and stop issuing them and, and leave me holding the bag with these illiquid bonds that are no longer being supported? So it's it's not a very smart thing to do. Um, again, Germany is a fairly small issuer, as was Canada, and, and so neither of those ceasing issuance has the same market impact that it would if, say, France or the UK decided to stop issuing. Um, like I said, Canada was also small beer, but it also it, it, but it sends a terrible message, especially in Germany's case, because it wasn't all that many decades ago that they that Germany had a, a rather celebrated struggle with inflation. And when you stop issuing inflation-linked bonds because you think they'll cost too much, it kind of sends the wrong message. Um, as, as a side note, um, unless nominal bond interest rates don't adjust when inflation goes up, you know, like as you as you issue, like, you know, as the U.S. Treasury now is issuing new bonds, they have higher interest rates because we've had higher inflation, right? Unless that doesn't happen, then in the long run, nominal bond issuance always ends up costing the same or more because the nominal interest rates do adjust. And, 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 and that could potentially even cost more because the buyer of a nominal bond has to price in the uncertainty of his real return over time, while the buyer of an inflation-linked bond doesn't have to price in anything for the uncertainty of a real return. They know what their real return is. And so you should be... You should demand an extra premium to invest in a nominal bond. But bureaucrats aren't thinking about the next 40 years. They're thinking about the next four quarters. Um, so it's stupid. I wonder if they spoke to anyone knowledgeable before making the decision. We know that Canada didn't. But I suspect they didn't want to hear any message that suggested that uh, doing away with inflation-linked bonds was a bad idea. Anyway. Enough editorializing. Um, on to the main topic, which is the cost of college education. Um, so, well, for years, the cost of college education in the United States has ballooned. And, and um, uh, from 1978 to 2018, CPI for college tuition and fees rose 2.6 times as much as headline inflation. 
Uh, inflation for tuition on a rolling five-year basis was always above general inflation by around 3.1% on average over this, this long period of time from 78 to 2018. Now, that shouldn't be surprising to anybody who's listening who is a parent with kids in college or just out of college or heading into college. Um, college is crazy expensive, much more expensive than it was when we, we in quotes, when we went to school. And the question is why? Uh, it's something that I have thought about, not just in the shower, but for quite a while, long time. In, in 2017, my firm, Enduring Investments, licensed a tuition savings risk reduction strategy to Standard & Poor's, which was marketed for a few years as the S&P Target Tuition Inflation Index. So I've spent a lot of time looking and studying how in college tuition inflation works, uh, what goes into the costs of, uh, of a college and their revenues and how that informs on what ends up happening to, to tuition. Um, but um, so it, so it's something that I, I have a little bit of a background in, but what's happened recently, I think, well, I'll get to that in a second. When the cost of an item, let's step back and speak more generally here. When the cost of an item increases, dramatically relative to another item in the short term, it generally reflects some idiosyncratic relative supply and demand factors, as opposed to when the regular, when the general price level rises, um, which is a monetary phenomenon. So, you know, in COVID, when used car prices went up 60% or whatever, they went up 40%, um, a lot of that was idiosyncratic due to the fact that no new cars were being made because we couldn't get uh, the, the stuff that goes in seat cushions and computer chips and, and so on. Um, and because rental car companies weren't buying new cars, they didn't have any used cars to sell, so there was no supply. So there was this idiosyncratic effect. And so in the short run, that's idiosyncratic supply and demand stuff. Oh, and the price of something, though, rises persistently faster than another thing. It generally means, and I'll give you, I say generally because there, there are exceptions, but um, it generally means that the productivity increases. So the improvement in output over time for a given level of inputs, the productivity increases of the, the fast inflating thing, those productivity increases are systematically lower than the productivity increases of the thing which is increasing in price slowly. Let me give you an example. The cost of corn over a long period of time has risen, but it's risen less than the general price level. In other words, the real price of corn has fallen over a long period of time because we've gotten better and better at growing and harvesting corn. Take that Thomas Malthus, you know, where for, for most agricultural products, the and for that matter, most mining products as well, we've gotten better and better at growing and extraction. And so the real prices of commodities over time have fallen. By the way, that doesn't mean that a commodity index isn't a great inflation hedge, but that's a totally different question. And that's a totally different podcast. And I'm not talking about that now. But be, the reason that that the real prices of commodities have fallen over time is because we just get better and better and better and better at, at extracting them and growing them. 
And so one possible explanation for why college tuition has risen faster than the price level is that demand has grown over time for college, but productivity increases in producing the college output have been poor. Arguably, we use mostly the same methods to offer college now as we did 40 years ago. You know, the professor in the tweed jacket, the library, uh, you know, a physical campus, and, and so on. Anyway, that would be one explanation for why college tuition has gone up. We're just not, you know, we've got more demand, but we're now better at producing the supply than we used to be. We can produce the same amount of education as we once could. Um, and if colleges were profit-maximizing institutions, then there would be more of a, of a pressure to increase productivity, and so maybe that wouldn't happen, but they're not profit-maximizing institutions, and the buyers of the product, in this case, the students, the parents, get discounts from the endowment, government grants, and so on, and they get vendor financing, you know, low-cost loans subsidized by the government, for example. Um, and so the willingness to pay for a product that isn't getting much better over time hasn't stopped going up, and so therefore prices rise. Um, anyway, that's what I, I thought was sort of the main reason. Uh, and then my son went to college. So <laughs> I have to tell you, my son goes to a very nice college uh, that's not cheap at all. Um, it, it, it may well be, and I think it probably is, that colleges teach a lot of extraneous stuff now that doesn't need to be taught. <laughs> and it is bizarre that a history degree costs the same as an economics degree when these are very different products, right? I mean, regardless, forget which one is more valuable or whatever. They're just different products, Right. And so why should their price necessarily be the same? It's kind of odd. It just sort of says any degree is, is worth the same amount or should cost. It's just, it's just sort of strange when you think about it. But in touring colleges and, and then in following along as my son has been in college, I think there are some inescapable conclusions, which are admittedly probably colored by my narrow anecdotes. You know, my son uh, studying marine biology Ergo, all of the campuses we looked at were near beaches and gorgeous and so on. So maybe, maybe, you know, that, that clearly does color my conclusions. But, but here are my conclusions. One is university facilities are orders of magnitude nicer than they were when I went to college in the mid-80s. And I went to a really nice university where we used to joke about the gardener-to-student ratio, okay? But we only had one dining hall. It was only open certain hours. We thought it was much better than what was available at other colleges. That was probably true. But it totally pales by comparison to what is available even at a small institution today. We looked at a small college in Rhode Island. And they showed us one of their many dining halls where, among other things, one card swipe got you all-you-can-eat sushi. I mean, what? All-you-can-eat sushi. Okay. Uh, that's, um, yeah, there, there are many dining options. And um, and there's obviously lots of other wonderful facilities at, at almost every college, it seems. It's just really has, the offering and physical plant um, just seems so much better than what it was when I went to school. And, I, and I, I do also, I guess the second conclusion is I do think at least in the sciences, because students can now 
take their work with them very easily and simulation is more accessible, which helps, uh, you know, in visualize certain things which are sort of difficult otherwise to fully understand. I think the quality of what is being taught in terms of the raw knowledge being taught might in many cases be better than it was back when I was in school. Example, my son took a, uh, a, a programming class. He's never done any computer programming. He took an intro programming for science majors class, you know, sort of the basics here. And he was programming in Python by the end of the semester. Um, I've been programming for since the early 80s, and, and I still struggle with something like Python, right? So anyway, that sort of points out something else, and that's that there's a whole new branch of stuff that has to be taught that wasn't taught back in the 80s. That is, you know, a lot of the computer science stuff. Yes, we had computer science classes, but it wasn't anything like what is necessary for everybody to be taught uh, today. But anyway, I could go on. And again, these are uh, just anecdotes and, and not typically, not particularly valued in and of themselves, but it kind of triggered sort of my general thought process. Everything I've said so far is, is, is debatable, but, but let's suppose that what I said is true. The other way that CPI for college tuition and fees, or any other CPI for that matter, can run ahead of other prices for a very long period of time. I said one way is that the productivity is, is poor, right? But another way it can run ahead for a long period of time is that there may be quality improvements that aren't being adjusted for. Uh, so... If I pay more for a car in real terms after inflation, so it's 3% inflation, and this year I pay 3% more for a car than I did last year, um, or there's 3% inflation, I pay 5% more for the car this year. Okay, so I paid 2% more after inflation. That might be because it's actually a better car and I'm getting more. There's other reasons in any given one year that could happen, but um, if the BLS makes an adjustment to the quality, then, then it won't show inflation. If it, if it recognizes the car is 2% better quality, so I got 2% more car, and and uh, and so the price of the car in quality-adjusted terms went up 3%, same as the price level. There was no net extra inflation in automobiles, right? So, of course, then people will snark about hedonic adjustments and blah, 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 blah. Um uh, but it won't, it, it, the, in that case, there's not really inflation in the, in, in, in the car in terms of if I pay more and I get more, it isn't inflation, right? It's if I pay more and I'm not getting more, that's inflation. Okay. So if the BLS though, in this case did not adjust for the fact that this car was actually 2% better then it would show up as a 5% price increase compared to the 3% in headline inflation, it would say, oh, the price of cars went up 2% more than inflation, um, even though it actually isn't. Even though I really was getting more for the car, the BLS didn't make the adjustment, and so it shows up as too much inflation. Better example, perhaps, is healthcare. That's another place where the CPI over a long period of time shows vastly more price inflation than the, than the general price level. But is it really true? And of course, you know, we know that that the cost of healthcare has consumed more and more of the national budget over time in nominal terms. And so that's, you know, no question we pay more. But 
how much has the quality of medical care gone up over time? Look, it, it, that's one of the places where we're probably getting a lot more quality adjustment than is showing up in the data. It doesn't mean that it doesn't cost you more money to get medical care. It just means that paying more money is something you're happy to do because you also have a better chance of living than you used to. Uh, the BLS is always trying to figure out how to adjust for healthcare quality, but the evidence is that they're probably not doing enough of that. But it's a hard thing to do, okay? So it's not a complaint. It's, it's just an observation. Inflation in healthcare is probably at least a little bit illusory, illusory because we're getting a little bit we're getting more quality improvement in healthcare than we're really compensating for in the indices. So ergo they're exaggerating healthcare inflation a little bit. So take that everybody who doesn't like hedonic adjustments, they're probably not making enough hedonic adjustments in healthcare and so healthcare inflation is probably not really as high as it looks. Back to college. And moreover, what about quality adjustments that aren't part of the purpose of the thing that you're buying? So in a free market, if there's a quality improvement that people don't actually value, they won't pay for it, right? Which would say it's not actually an improvement in quality. If you add fins to a car today, nice fins, it's not likely to fetch a higher price. So it's a quality improvement you know, if, if you said it was a quality improvement in the CPI, you know, uh, you'd be getting more for the same amount of money. So if the BLS said, ooh, fins, that makes the car more valuable. But no one's paying more for the car because they don't think fins is worth anything. And so that would show up in the BLS as getting more car for the money. It would show up as, as deflation. And moreover, but you would look at it and say, well, I'm not getting any more. I'm getting fins. I don't like fins. Why do I want fins in the car? That's like so so 50s, right? I don't need that. When, which is to say that when we have a free market, sometimes you can tell if something is a valued quality improvement uh, on the basis of whether people are paying more for it. In other words, do they value it? It's not as easy as all that because this all gets tangled up with money illusion. You know, you're, you're paying more, but the price level has gone up, so you're not really paying more and measurement issues and so on and so forth, but hypothetically. So hypothetically, is the purpose of college to know more or to do more? By the way, it was a really long shower. <laughs> so it's, you know, it kind of goes on for a while. Is the purpose of college to know more or to come out of college being able to do more? If it's able, is it, if it's to be able to do more, if that's the purpose of college, is to, is to teach you to be more productive in society, then future engineers shouldn't want to pay more for a curriculum that teaches them ancient Greek in addition to mechanics than they would be willing to pay for a curriculum that doesn't teach them ancient Greek. And you wouldn't want to call the teaching of ancient Greek to engineers a quality adjustment, right? Because it's not a valued quality adjustment. Um, because the purpose of college, the way I've just defined it, is to be able to do more, not necessarily to know more. In the former case, they know Greek, that's great, but that's probably not really what the, what the purpose of college is. Anyway, here here's also where the problem of bundled services comes in. Suppose Disney adds a new ride, 
but I don't like it. It doesn't add to my Disney experience at all. But I don't have the option to not pay for that ride unless I don't want to pay for any rides at Disney. So unless the price of a Disney trip goes up a lot because of the new ride, or unless they add a bunch of new rides that all suck, which case I just don't want to go and I'll pay for anything, it's really hard to tell from the outside whether that one new ride added quality to my experience or not. And it's the same thing with colleges. The university experience is clearly a lot different than it used to be. How much of that is an actual improvement in college and how much of it is an increase in stuff that don't go to the heart of what we're paying for in college and, and so aren't really quality improvements and so does represent an increase in the real price of the college when we pay for those things. These are unknowable things. Um, my guess is that, my just intuition is that, you know, we, I said at, early on that three, over the last uh, 40, 50 years, uh, college tuition has increased about 3.1% faster than the CPI on average every year over time. My guess is that maybe a third of that is actual improvements in quality, that actually college is doing its job better and two-thirds of that is poor productivity that someone else is paying for. Um, but it's hard to tell, right? So what's interesting, though, and here's why this kind of comes up in my head, um, is that since 2018, tuition has really underperformed inflation. So, again, this hadn't happened on a five-year basis since at least the 70s, Okay. I mean, probably longer than that, as far back as I had data. Um, but over the last five years, tuition has really underperformed. Between the end of 2017 and the beginning of COVID, college tuition, core inflation, and headline inflation all rose about 5% total between end of 2017 and February of 2020. College tuition wasn't running ahead anymore. It was neck and neck. And then in 2020, some colleges dropped their tuitions slightly because of remote learning. And the BLS had to confront the question of, gosh, if everybody is learning remotely, isn't that a decline in quality? And they said at the time that they weren't going to make a quality adjustment because it was probably temporary. It was hard to measure, and they were just going to wait and see. And, and sure enough, after a short period of time, after a year, everybody went back to, to college, and it kind of... Uh, wasn't all that important. But but in 2020, though colleges started, some of them dropped their tuition. Um, and But then since the end of 2021, college tuition in the CPI has also just grown at a really slow rate. Since the end of 2021, college tuition is only up 3.4%, while core inflation is up 9.2%, and headline is 10.4%. So it's way behind the overall inflation rate which is interesting. And I wonder if COVID made people rethink how much of those bundled services are crucial, which can be unbundled. Do I really need to send my kid to a school that has all of these other crazy things? Or can I send them to a place that, you know, uh, just has animal husbandry, if that's what my kid wants to do? Um, you know, which of these things can be unbundled and taught at the junior college level before we go on and, and pay for the, the full boat. Um, so are we seeing a, a change in the way that college education is delivered and paid for? 
Uh, time will tell, right? So at least part of what's happening is that federal support for colleges and endowment returns have both been terrific since COVID. And so it might be that the cost is, is still going up for colleges, but someone else is paying. And so colleges are still keeping, you know, tuition increases modest, um, even though their costs are going up. And if that's true, then the next over the next five years, we'll see tuitions reaccelerate. And so that'll kind of answer the question. We'll have to wait and see. A lot of what we do in inflation is waiting and seeing. So now back to the top and answering the trivia questions for all of you out there with a liberal arts degree. In Hobbes' Leviathan, how did the author famously describe the lives of mankind in its natural condition? Um, Hobbes writes, in such condition, you'll recognize some of this, not all of it, probably. In such condition, there is no place for industry because the fruit thereof is uncertain and consequently no culture of the earth, no navigation, nor use of the commodities that may be imported by sea, no commodious building, no instruments of moving and removing such things as require much force, no knowledge of the face of the earth, no account of time, no arts, no letters, no society, and which is worst of all, continual fear and danger of violent death, and the life of man, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short." And of course, that's the part that you know. Solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short is the human condition. And that's from Hobbes, and now you know. Thanks very much for subscribing. That's all for today's podcast. Thanks all for thanks all for listening. That's all for today's podcast. Please subscribe, and some of you have, and thank you for that. And for, for others, contact me at inflationguy at enduringinvestments.com. You can subscribe for free to the blog along with a thousand other people who already have at inflationguy.blog. Follow me on Twitter at, or, or X or whatever you want to call it, at inflation underscore guy and visit Enduring Investments. Take a look at our new website. And if you've got an inflation challenge or you're curious about something having to do with inflation, fill out a contact form and I'll get in contact. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Most importantly, defend your money. And if inflation is coming for you, remember... You know a guy.